0: This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Built It Productions and Luminary Media, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Hubert Jolie and Best Buy.
1: Fish rot from the head. And there were some aspects of the top leadership of the company that were not appropriate. In fact, the CEO had been fired. Uh, But underneath that, you had unbelievable passion and talent at the company. And I felt it was all about, you know, mobilizing this talent in pursuit of the turnaround plan. And that proved to be correct.
0: How Hubert Jolie became CEO of Best Buy just as the company and the market for brick-and-mortar big-box stores was careening towards disaster.
2: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt.
2: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
0: Okay, so in baseball, there's an old term for a relief or closing pitcher, a fireman. And these pitchers earn that name because they're really good at performing under pressure. In critical moments, moments that would make a typical pitcher balk or choke, a fireman takes the mound, assesses the situation, and fights the fire, you know, saves the day. And why are firemen so good under pressure? Well, in part because they crave adversity. They can navigate stressful situations with calm and clarity. Crisis feeds their focus. So now imagine it's the bottom of the ninth inning and your team is Best Buy in 2012. To say there was a crisis is an understatement. In January of that year, Forbes published an article with the headline, Why Best Buy is Going Out of Business. And then in March... The company reported a loss of $1.7 billion. In April, the CEO resigned because of an inappropriate relationship with an employee. And in August, the founder tried to buy back the company. And during all of this, the stock price was plunging. So at that point, Best Buy needed a fireman. Now, Hubert Jolie neither played baseball nor had much experience running an electronics retailer. But he never shied away from a challenge or a crisis. In fact, he had built an entire career around saving companies in crisis. So when the leaders at Best Buy went searching for a fireman, they chose Hubert Jolie. Hubert grew up in France, and by the time he was 13, he knew he wanted to go into the business world. As a young man, he managed to land himself at one of the most demanding business schools in the world, HEC Paris. And soon after, he was recruited by the international consulting firm McKinsey & Company.
1: Yeah, so I worked uh, first, uh, I think uh, one of my first projects at McKinsey was a study for a Swiss uh, jam and canned food manufacturer in their Dutch markets. And so I was uh, in... uh, the south of the Netherlands hmm. in, in the winter uh, eating pea soup and trying to understand how they could improve their operations, which was uh, sort of odd because I was like 23. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so, But great learning experience. I've learned so much at McKinsey over the years for sure.
0: And, I mean, you stayed there for a long time, right? I mean, you got there in 1983, yep. I think. You were probably in your early 20s. Yep. You were there... Until 1996? That's right. So you were working on a project for them as, a, as an associate with McKinsey. Were you, were you a partner by then? I was then? a
1: partner. In 1990, I became a partner, and so I was a partner working. Then.
0: I mean, once you're 10 years in, once you make partner, it's very difficult to leave because the the golden handcuffs, right? You've got the, a job, a tenured job, essentially. You've got an increasing income. If you've got a family, that's a risk.
1: Yes, but I was driven by what do I want to do? And I really enjoyed my years at the firm, in particular the partner years, as a matter of fact, because I learned so much from my clients. The irony is that they were paying me and I was learning from them. Right. Uh, And I have very fond memories of several amazing CEOs and I learned so much about how they were leading, their leadership philosophy, how they were leading in a very human fashion. And this is what has led me to then want to be a leader as as opposed to just a, an advisor and problem solver.
0: And at McKinsey, were you working in specific areas, technology or?
1: Predominantly in the tech sector. So mm-hmm. I worked for uh, telcos. Uh, I worked for a printed circuit board manufacturer, defense and aerospace, computer company, IT services company. I had a a range of clients both in France and in the U.S.
0: And did you have a family by then?
1: I had a family. I had two uh, young children.
0: So you were working on a project for EDS, Electronic Data Systems, Uh, as a McKinsey partner. Clearly, they liked your work, and they said to you, hey, would you consider running our French division?
1: The way it happened is that the, the the president of the French business called me and said, uh, uh, I'd like you to help me think about the profile of my successor. And so, so we talked about it. Anytime I was leading in a particular direction, he was bringing it back to somebody who looked like me. <laughs> so two days later, I called him back and said, Alain, were you trying to tell me that you would like me to consider the job? And he said, no, but now that you mentioned this, I think that'd be a great idea. And, and wow. that's how it happened.
0: So you were, I think, probably about 35. Yes. When you became the president of EDS. This is a big international company.
1: I was the president of EDS France, which was uh, my first real job. I was, uh, it was about a 3,000 people organization. What, what, did, what, what was EDS's main product? It was um, uh, IT services, uh, outsourcing, so running IT infrastructures for uh, large corporations and developing or maintaining applications. That was what uh, EDS was doing.
0: Did it At that time, did it feel unusual or it, was any part of you sort of nervous about taking on such a big job at such a young age?
1: Uh, how did I feel when I walked in? See, I didn't know whether I was going to be a good leader because I had never led anything. Uh, and it was a little bit odd. The first time I, I attended uh, a management meeting at EDS France as the president of the business, they wanted me to sit at the head of the table. Uh-huh. And I said, no, 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 I want to sit with everybody else. You know, it's just a team effort and so forth. Uh, so I, I was a little bit self-conscious, I guess. Um, and I discovered... That uh, I was able to lead and inspire uh, people, uh, and that was based in large part to or, or thanks to what I had learned from some of my clients uh, during my partner years at, uh, at, at at McKinsey, One of the uh, leaders who inspired me the most, his name is Jean-Marie de quite a French name. Uh, he was he had been the CEO of Honeywell Bull. And he was a turnaround expert. Hmm. And what I learned from him notably was the the purpose of a company is not to make money. Hmm. Uh, People get confused between purpose and necessity and imperative. And I believe that strongly today, that a company has uh, multiple imperatives. Uh, He started with a people imperative, meaning you need to have good people, well-trained, well-motivated. Then there's the business imperative. Uh, which is you need to have customers that are happy and that, you know, uh, that allow you to grow. And then you have a financial imperative, which is you need to make money for your shareholders and that you can, that you can invest in the business. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a sequence, right? Excellence on the people imperative leads to excellence on the business imperative, which leads to excellence on the financial imperative. Mm-hmm. But financial performance is more an outcome rather than the goal. So contrary to Milton Friedman, I don't believe that the main purpose uh, or, or way for companies to create value for society is uh, through the profit. It's a necessity, but they have a bigger asp- aspirations. It's, it's to contribute to the to the common good and his view was that uh, between these three imperatives you actually shouldn't choose you should refuse the tyranny of or Mm. and embrace the power of and so when people ask you should we take care of the employees or the customers Mm. or the customers or the shareholders he says and it's all of them and less companies you know will excel simultaneously on on the people imperative the business imperative and the financial imperative and then the last thing he said is that at the end of the day and I firmly believe this to to this day. You know, it all goes back to the human beings, because the only thing that exists in life is human beings and human interactions. So, eventually, the purpose of a company is to contribute to the development of the and the fulfillment of the individuals working at the company, and um, it has to do also with the impact that the company has on people around the company, the the customers, the vendors, the communities, and so forth. So, uh, that philosophy, uh, which I continue to embrace to this day, uh, was very uh, formative and helpful as I walked into Mm. the EDS building in 1996. How
0: do you, I mean, aside from from having seen examples of other leaders when you were a consultant, how did you begin to implement that? Because I, I can't imagine that on day one, you could say, um, you know, okay, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. I mean, you're coming into a new company. It's the first time you're leading a company. I have to assume at McKinsey, you probably didn't have any subordinates, right? A, a partner has teams and... My you, assistant, maybe. Right. Yes. Yeah, now you're in charge of what? 3,000 3, people. 3,000 people. It's, it's kind of an overwhelming responsibility. Yes.
1: And so the truth is that size, I believe size does not matter. Whether you have 100 people... One thousand or hundred thousand—it's actually the same, because you actually lead with a close team of about ten people, and then you really interact with maybe hundred people, uh, and then beyond that, it's very indirect. So whether it's one thousand, ten thousand, or hundred thousand, it's actually the same. And so uh, when I studied at EDS, you know, what we did with the management team uh, was we did a diagnosis together, hmm. and we and and because of what I learned from. Jean-Marie, we structured our diagnosis around people and organization, customers, and then financials. We, even though this was a turnaround because the, the French business was not doing well,
0: it was well. not doing well. It, it was in revenue decline. was
1: going down. We Who was the biggest competitor? Uh, France has a good number of very successful IT services companies. So, Cap Gemini was one. Mm-hmm. The company that became Atos, uh, it was another one. IBM uh, sure. it was another one. So we yeah. had, and then Anderson Consulting at the time. Sure. So we had formidable competitors, and for a variety of reasons, we were not doing well. So you know, we started with a good diagnosis around people. You did business. what you did at at McKinsey. You, you did self consulting. And but the way we did it, of course, with with the team, because you want to, you know, you want the team to co-create the diagnosis in yeah. the uh, and, and and the strategy and so that's how we started to work on that and what happened well we <laughs> we developed a turnaround plan um and i had you know have these uh, principles around turnaround plans uh, again start with people so first thing you want to do is to make sure that you have the right team uh, to lead the turnarounds uh, in fact you know one of the things people who have done many turnarounds believes that you at the top of the company you want to be very precise you never fire somebody too quickly because hmm. these are not training you know training grounds you want to make sure from day one that you have a great uh, you have a great team so you have to assess the team and uh, everybody starts with an A. Mm-hmm. Forget about what happened before. Now you you decide whether you're gonna keep the A or not, but you start with an A uh, and then you know you start working on this. So we did the the So we built a team and then uh, the the we developed a plan to turn the company around. Ironically, we didn't start with headcount. Many times when there's a turnaround when a company is not doing well you see people and it's 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 oftentimes heartbreaking. Uh, announce a big reduction in force. Sure. We're going to fire 1,000 people right. or eliminate 10,000 jobs, and sometimes the share price goes up because of this. Sure, uh, I find this very distressing. So, uh, my approach is different, is to say the first priority in a turnaround is see how you can increase the revenue. That's priority number one. Priority number two, you're going to have to cut costs, of course, but you start with what I call non-salary expenses, so mm-hmm. all of the costs that have nothing to do with people. And at most companies, it's eighty percent of the cost structure.
0: Inefficiencies.
1: Inefficiencies. It's you know what you buy from third parties. It's waste. Mm. So first, focus on that. It's a wonderful uh, source of uh, of opportunity. And then you really get to headcount as a last resort. Mm-hmm. So if revenue growth and reduction of non-salary expenses is not sufficient. Then you look at headcount reduction. Uh, but the fact that you, you do this as a last resort, I think, changes everything. Because if you believe that a company is a human organization made of people working together, uh, just eliminating jobs is not, you know, the principal uh, yeah. uh, goal.
0: You help turn around EDS. Yes. This is really the first time, I guess, you are involved in a real turnaround as the leader of a yes. company. Um, and you are tapped
1: by Vivendi,
0: huge media group in France, to be the CEO of its games division. Is that right? Which
1: now is Activision Blizzard, uh, which right. is a, a wonderful success. Story.
0: What did you know about about video games?
1: Uh, I had played a few video games. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew that. So, what
0: did they what were they looking for you to do when they when they recruited you?
1: So, there is a, a story. Uh, so, I think it was in April of nineteen ninety nine. Uh, I had been at EDS for three years and felt, you know, we had turned around the, 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 the company for a variety of reasons. I felt it was time for me to to move on. I was having lunch with uh, one of my former colleagues from McKinsey, Agnès Touraine, who had just uh, uh, acquired this company in, in Los Angeles, this hmm. video games company, and... Uh, I said, yes, you look tired. Uh (laughs) I did. he said, yeah, we've been trying to recruit a new CEO for that company, and it's really hard. And uh, and so I said, well, maybe we should talk because I'm I'm, I'm open to taking a new challenge. And she said, no, we've decided to recruit an American CEO, and that's what the Vivendi board wants to do. And and then uh, a month later, they offered me the job. I actually knew the CEO of Vivendi. He had been a client of mine. And uh, he'd been a client of yours when you were at McKinsey. At McKinsey, and they felt that I think the, uh, the my turnaround expertise, uh, not just at EDS but what I had done at McKinsey, the fact that I had worked in tech, and the fact, of course, that uh, you know we, we we knew each other uh, was uh, was helpful. And and so they took the risk on me and offered me the job. What was going on at Avendi at the time? So, Vivendi was uh, transforming itself from a traditional utility company in France uh, that was 150 years old uh, into a media and entertainment company. So, this was before they acquired Universal, Mm. uh, but they were already in the mobile telephony business, they were in pay TV uh, in in Europe, and this was their first, I think, major acquisition in the media sector in in the U.S.,
0: and so you were tasked to take over the, the video game part of the company? Yep. And what, what I mean, what, was it a growing part of the company? Was it stagnant? Was it non-existent? What was going on with, with video games?
1: The, the, this video games company was actually the leader, the uh, worldwide leader in PC gaming. Uh, they had a wonderful studio called Blizzard, uh, it
0: was in France at the studio. Or? The
1: studio is actually in in Irvine, California. Okay, Blizzard Entertainment is the studio that has done World of Warcraft, right? Uh, the Diablo games, the Starcraft games. It's a wonderfully successful uh, studio. And
0: Vivendi owns that, or owned that,
1: owned that, and so acquired that company mm-hmm. uh, at the time. It was part of what they had acquired. So it was the leader in PC gaming. Hmm. Uh, there were some challenges, though. So this was also a bit of a turnaround. Uh, uh, even though they were the leader, they were they, they had some struggles. So this was my second uh, turnaround uh, uh, of that uh, of that business. What did
0: you have to do there?
1: Uh, so part of it, we had to um, shrink a little bit the portfolio because there were some parts that were not as successful as they should have been. But then it was also about growth. Mm. Uh, one of the things I'm the most proud of is how we... Uh, expanded the international success of that, uh, of that company, and Blizzard in particular, which was one of the divisions, had these wonderful games, you know, StarCraft, Diablo, and they were about to launch uh, Diablo II uh, in, uh, in the summer of uh, 2000. And historically, uh, they had been very successful in the U.S., but not so much in Europe and Asia, hmm. and so I did a workshop in London with the Blizzard team and then the international team, and said, "Let's review what's in the way." And we made two decisions at the time. Uh, one was to ensure that their discs were, at the time, they were you know CD shiny ROMs, discs, CD yeah, ROMs, or, yeah, that they were copy protected, and that we would launch the game simultaneously on the same date around the world. Hmm. The reason for this was that uh, historically they launched the game in the US uh, and only launched the game later internationally. That meant the international players would try to get the game before it launched, ah. the gray market, so they got illegal copies or there was a gray market. And so when they launched internationally, it was you know not a big noise because most you know a lot of people already had the game. They already so had the, it, yeah. So the retailers didn't want to make a big deal out of this and so forth. And we said, all right, so... If we do a simultaneous launch, and if we copy protect the games, then that's going to make a, a, a difference. And it was challenging to launch simultaneously because that meant you you needed to work on the translations of the game at the same time. At the same time, and so this was a wonderful experience of mobilizing a team around an opportunity. Uh, and in the in the weeks leading to the launch of the game, you know, we would have weekly calls looking at how the game was being polished and and making the decisions together. And indeed, uh, Diablo did 3 million copies, whereas their previous games Starcraft, had only done 1 million, huh. simply because we uh, nailed the international it- piece. And we, yeah. we made the cover of the New York Times, the business section of the New York Times, next to Harry Potter. Two successful launches, huh. Harry Potter and Diablo 2. It was uh, quite cool.
2: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect
1: role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites.
2: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
0: Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill, and Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. Cool. Yeah, because, I mean, there was a time in the not-too-distant past when you would launch something over the course of a year or a year and a half around the world. It would always start in the U.S. Yeah. And then eventually we get and, – and that doesn't make sense in a world where everybody can watch, yeah. you know – video conference on the new iPhone and everybody can see Tim Cook today and whatever. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. you're sitting in Bangladesh or in Singapore and you're watching this in real time in the U.S., you, you want it at the same time. Exactly,
1: The world has changed, yes.
0: Yeah. So, you last at Vivendi for a long time. You're there until 2004, based in Paris?
1: So, first based in Los Angeles, then uh, Vivendi acquires Universal uh, in 2000. And I'm asked to oversee the merger between Vivendi and Universal, out of the New York uh, office. Uh, so and what was the, that like? I was in the Seagram Building. Well, it was actually an interesting time. In a sense, this was the worst time of my professional life. The the reason why I'd applied for this um, merger management or post merger management role was that I felt it brought me, it would it would bring me closer to the top of the company. Hmm. So I was attracted by. Uh, the advancements and the power associated with you this. You
0: thought, if I oversee the merger of, the, of Vivendi and Universal, maybe I can become the CEO of this whole thing. Um,
1: that was not that clear, but it was driven, I think it's a very important question to understand what you're driven uh, by. Yeah. And uh, I have now developed the view that if you're driven by power, fame, glory, or money, this is a big danger. And this was the one time in my career where I was I was driven, the decision was driven by I can get more power closer to the top and so forth the the best leaders don't climb to the top they are carried to the hmm. top so it's this idea that once you're in a job Focus on doing a great job at that time, you know, producing great results, being helpful to colleagues, develop your teams, and then assume that God will provide, you know, and that if you're going to advance, you're going to advance, but not be driven to climb to the top. And for me, that was a big lesson at the time. Be, you know, I had to be aware of the uh, seduction of power, fame, glory, or money.
0: Um, you, you say it was the toughest time of your career.
1: Not the toughest, the worst. The worst. Okay. The worst because it because it was driven by the wrong motivation. And then it, when you have a nonsensical job, uh, then it's not very rewarding. Why was it nonsensical? Uh, it was nonsensical uh, because the, the business logic of the merger was weak. Hmm. These were the crazy times around the dot-com period. Sure. AOL and, and acquired Time Warner, so it was a merger mania around this. And then cultural differences were very significant. You could see... Uh, the 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 nuances uh, around many many different things, uh, in, including you know emails. You know, in the US, we respond to email immediately. Right away, yeah. Uh, in in France, uh, it was you know so so the US executives were sometimes very frustrated because they uh, would
0: send an email out and they'd have to wait five or six yeah, hours yeah. <laughs> or maybe a or day. Uh,
1: so. Yeah. Um, this was uh, when something doesn't make sense you know then bad things happen so uh,
0: it, i mean it sounds like pretty soon after you go back to paris to try and get this merger sorted out in your mind at least you're thinking i got to get out of here i got to figure out my next the next thing
1: the the the, the sequence guy is uh, i'm in charge of the uh, the synergies from Late 2000, early 2001 to mid-2002. And I'm based in New York at the time. Uh, and in June, rather July of 2002, Jean-Marie Messier, then the chairman and CEO, uh, is asked to leave the, the company. There's yeah. a big liquidity crisis. And the COO of the, of the company, Eric Lico, asked me to move back to Paris and now be part of the team that uh, essentially did the restructuring of the company. So, it's a different regime. Uh, there's a new CEO, uh, Jean-René Fortou, a new team, and I'm part of that uh, new executive team. So, this is actually one of the best times of my life from a wow. professional standpoint. Because? Uh, because this is a, it's a big crisis, and I love challenges. You know, we, during the summer... You know, I think Moody's tells us that um, we're going to run out of cash at the end of July. Wow. Uh, and so, we quickly uh, secure a billion euros uh, credit line. And then in August, uh, another $2 billion. And uh, we have these debt maturities that are uh, coming up. The construct of the group doesn't make sense, as we've discussed. And so, uh, we have to um, restructure the company. And so, this, this um, commando, if you will, has been assembled.
0: This team of, of right. e-
1: executives. And um, we both have to manage the company and then see what assets we're going to sell. Uh, so, we have to sort out the portfolio because we have mm-hmm. too much debt at the time uh, and not much cash flow. Uh, was, this,
0: was any of this anticipated by the...
1: There was... Um, I mean the, the period of 2001 early 2002 the board of Vivendi becomes increasingly concerned about how uh, Jean-Marie Messier is running the place mm. he's making too many acquisitions so they tell him and then there was a bit of bad luck in the in the spring of 2002 as you'll remember uh, the financial markets froze because notably of Enron right and so Vivendi had some uh, debt maturity that in normal circumstances they would have been able to refinance, hmm. but the financial markets freeze, and so um, you're really you know stuck at that point in time. And it was not enough focused on on liquidity, real cash, yeah. real cash matters in yeah. the end. And so the reason why it was uh, uh, an exciting time is that uh, we had assembled this team and we we did save the the company. Uh, and uh, so for two years. Learned a lot. Uh, learned how to sell businesses, uh, and you know we ended up selling Universal to Genbc. And because in that team I was in charge of overseeing, uh, following the U.S. assets of the uh, of the company. Once we had sold uh, Universal to NBC, I worked myself out of a job. Right. Uh, but very fond memory of that team. Many of them are still friends, and learned a ton uh, from that time.
0: 2004, you leave Evendi, uh, and you go and work for a travel company, a big one, Carlson Wagonlit Travel Company. How did that
1: happen? I was approached uh, by a headhunter to become the CEO of Carlson Wagonlit Travel, uh, or CWT. Carlson Wagonlit Travel had been a client of mine at EDS. I had helped them with their uh, system, so I knew the retiring CEO. Uh, at the time, Carlson Wagonlit was a joint venture between Carlson out of Minnesota, a, a family-owned private uh, hospitality and travel company that also owned Fridays, TGI Fridays and Radisson and, and whatnot, and Accor, the French hotel company. Ah. And it was a very much a French-American company, right? Huh. Two parents, 50-50 joint venture. And even though I didn't know anything about travel, uh, they thought I could you know, do a good job there.
0: So did you move to Minnesota?
1: Uh, No, uh, my job was based in Paris. And I would travel to Minnesota every month uh, because that's where our U.S. business was based. And, of course, one of our two parents was based there uh, uh, as well.
0: And this is a company that uh, I guess primarily what you were overseeing was you were overseeing the entire portfolio, the restaurants and the hotels. And this is a company that does like corporate travel and events, right? So,
1: Carlsenweg only travel is what I was first, from 04 to 08. I was the CEO of that part. And that's a corporate travel agency. So what it does is works for, notably, multinational companies yeah. like GE or Accenture or JP Morgan. When the employees need to travel, they're doing all the back end. And, and they work with the company to optimize the travel spend. Right. Uh, and then at the end of 07, when Marilyn Carlson Nelson, the daughter of the founder of Carlson, decides to retire, they decide to offer me the job to be the overseeing CEO the entire of company, Carlson. Exactly.
0: At that point, did you were you still in Paris, or were you going so back? So this to- is
1: when I moved. Uh, I moved to Minneapolis at the beginning of 2008. That's when I became the CEO of Carlson. Meantime, you're doing all
0: these moves, presumably with your family, yeah. right? They're, they've lived in LA, they've lived in Paris, they've lived in Minnesota, <laughs> and was that uh, challenging or was that exciting for them?
1: I think a great opportunity, right? Because the world has shrunk, and so I have a son, Stanislas, and a daughter, Agathe. And they've lived uh, across the two continents, so they are bilingual. They uh, understand two cultures. My son now lives in Dubai, my daughter in Paris. And uh, they're quite worldly, and they're wonderful kids. Uh, Moving is never easy, uh, but I think they they, they found some... uh, some uh, benefit to that. My daughter went to college in New York after, um, I mean, from 08 to 2012. She went to Barnard College. And so it's been good for them.
0: So you get to Carlson. doesn't sound like Carlson needed a whole lot of turnaround compared to your previous experiences at EDS and,
1: and Vivendi. Well, I joined Carlson on March 1st. I became the CEO on March 1st, 2008. uh uh-huh. Two weeks before <laughs> Bear Stearns. <laughs> right. Uh, In September, we have a board meeting to discuss the strategy. That's the week that led to the Lehman Brothers uh, weekends. Mm. Uh, And if you're in hospitality and travel, a great recession is not a good thing for you. And so uh, while it was a wonderful portfolio of assets with opportunities for sure, like any company, the great recession was a big challenge uh, because revenue went down precipitously. Everybody stopped traveling, certainly on the corporate side. And so, we and their had, whole
0: business was was ba- I mean, Radisson Hotels, TGI Fridays, yeah. and, and corporate ca- travel
1: exactly, and 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 Castle marketing, which was loyalty, but also events. So we faced a major crisis. Uh, in fact, uh, in 2009, uh, we thought we were going to run out of cash. Wow. Uh, given how significant this how, was, how big was was the company at the time? The company, uh, so uh, what they called the system-wide revenue. Uh, was about forty billion dollars, but the, the actual revenue of the company was a few billion uh, mm. dollars. Indirectly employed about one hundred fifty thousand people. Wow! More directly, I think it was maybe uh, thirty or forty thousand people. So, for a family uh, be- a privately held business, that's a it's a very significant uh, company. In
0: two thousand nine, it looked like you would run out of cash. Yes, you'd been in that p- play- same position at Vivendi. Yes, right. Um, what what do you do at
1: that point? So uh, a few things simultaneously. We first, we, of course, we had to go after cost, and so we adjusted the cost structure by about a half a billion uh, dollars. But we also simultaneously looked at how you know what's the best trajectory for each one of these businesses. What's yeah. the what's the strategy that's going to take each of these assets and make them you know the best possible? And third, we looked at the portfolio. You know, if you're a family-owned company, you don't have. It's the access to the financial markets uh, for for investment. So, which was the best configuration of the of the portfolio? And we, we decided to sell one of the businesses, which was Carlson Marketing. And I had learned at Vivendi how to sell businesses, so mm-hmm. we were able to uh, to do this. So it was a combination of uh, of restructuring and growth. Hmm.
0: So you you stayed there until 2012. You turn it around. Yes. Um, January of 2012. Forbes runs an article saying why Best Buy is going to go out of business. Um, that year, I think in the second quarter, Best Buy's net income slid like 91%. Um, and then its net income in the second quarter was $12 million. I mean, that, that sounds like a, a disaster. Yes. Uh, you are announced as the CEO on the 17th of August 2012. Uh, and that day, the share price drops 10%. Yes. So, so what shareholders are saying, uh, who is this guy?
1: They they did say this, yes.
0: It it, it sounds like Best Buy was in a major crisis. What
1: was going on that year? It was the the all-you-can-eat menu of challenges.
0: Coming up in just a moment, Hubert Jolie turnaround artist faces his biggest challenge yet. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Welcome back to Wisdom from the Top, I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2012, Uber Jolie is about to take the helm as CEO of Best Buy, and the company is in a full blown crisis. But apparently, one person's crisis is another person's, how did Uber put it? All you can eat buffet of challenges.
1: When I get the call from the headhunter in May of 2012, there's a series of challenges, strategic challenges, the internet is going to kill the the company. Also, a lot of the vendors are building their own stores, like Apple. There was operational challenges because the quality of service, the experience in the stores, uh, the experience online, it really you know was mediocre. Hmm.
0: Uh, uh, uh,
1: leadership challenges with the previous CEO had been being forced out. Under this is Brian Dunn. Brian Dunn. He, then, was,
0: he was forced out because, uh, I guess, he had a, a relationship that was deemed inappropriate with a, a subordinate. The founder and chairman of the company apparently knew about it, didn't disclose it. He was sort of pushed out.
1: So that was these leadership challenges, and then there were share, shareholder challenges with the share price going down precipitously and the founder and larger shareholder wanted to take to do a, he take wanted, private. He wanted, he
0: wanted to take it private he, I think it, he had about 20% of the shares yeah. and the share price went down to what 15 uh, or?
1: eventually in November of 2012 went down to $11 $11 and so this was a troubled company at the time okay now let, let's just
0: pause here and reflect on this for a moment yes. because 2012 I remember walking into a Best Buy it was hard to find somebody to help you out that's right uh, it was just big and stuff was all over the place and you know I, I, you could go in there, and uh, look at stuff, and then go home and order through Amazon, which is what a lot of people were doing. I mean, in fact, I think, in 2010, Amazon introduced an app that allowed you to price check, to go into Best Buy and compare the prices. Right. So a lot of people thought we were going to die. I mean, you would, but you wouldn't be irrational
1: to think that. There was a lot of reasons. So uh, before I joined the company, because I was neither crazy nor suicidal, uh, before I joined the company, I took the time to assess the opportunity. And of course, after I had joined, we we did with the team a diagnosis. And the conviction I, I, I developed was that the, the company's problems were essentially self-inflicted, because poor quality of service. Amazon was not crea- creating this. It was Best Buy, not uh, executing effectively. And second, the company had enough assets to effectuate a turnaround. Of course, online, we all shop online. Online sure. is a, such a convenient way to sure. research and buy. It also it also saw that the stores, if well run, had a big positive role to play. And so, uh, in, in particular, the many of us, Need want to touch feel and experience the product before we buy it uh, and uh, uh price uh, perception was an issue, but we could fix that so one of the first things we did is said we're going to take price off the table by matching online prices we're no match question. the
0: price you can get at Amazon or wherever
1: exactly else. so if people were in our stores, they were hours to lose, and uh, we would uh, take care of them uh The other thing is that the stores could be a wonderful asset for the vendors because these companies, whether it's Apple, Samsung, Sony, any one of these companies, they spend billions of dollars on R&D. They need to be able to showcase their products uh, and and have customers see them.
0: Every day rather than at like a convention like CES.
1: Exactly, (laughs) because not everybody goes to CES.
0: But you're talking about the way – it sounds like the way you were thinking about it was, look, all we have to do is – Think about how we operate this company differently. But I have to imagine not only were there analysts saying this model is dead, but there were people you knew from your time, you know, running companies telling you, Uber, this is just think about it. This is this makes no sense. Look at J.C. Look at Toys R Us. Look what all these big box retailers are are headed. Th- that model is over. I mean, I mean, you could make a plausible argument that it didn't matter how well you ran the company.
1: And what I had learned, Guy, over the years through the turnaround of EDS in France, the turnaround of the video games company, and uh, the transformation and growth of Carlson wagony Travel is that you, you know people may have points of view, but there's no, nothing like facts and nothing like a good diagnosis. And if you can truly dig and understand what matters for the customers and what they want and what they need and what you can do to meet these needs and, and build a competitive advantage around that. So you have to do the work around diagnosis and then developing a strategy. Sometimes the dominant point of view is not right. Mm-hmm. In the case of Best Buy, and I told this to the board two weeks after I started, that you know, I had not seen every company on the planet, but I had seen a few, and this one was by far the most dysfunctional company I'd ever seen. Why? Uh, because they, they were all divided and doing their own thing, they were not focused on the on the right thing, but this I thought it was great news because this was all fixable.
0: What was morale like first of all, at the corporate level when you got there?
1: Uh, so when I walked in more, morale at corporate was terrible. Imagine this so you're you live in in, in Minneapolis. And all of your friends are telling you every day. What are you doing are in you that doing? company? Exactly. You're going to you, be clever sinking ship. They were worried. Yeah. Uh, morale was terrible because, you know, when you have a CEO that's fired because of the circumstances, uh, there's a feud with the founder. And then ever,
0: $12 million in Net sales
1: in one quarter. Uh, $12 million of, of of net profit. Net profit, yeah. well. Wow. Uh, so the share price going down, so all of your, for the executive, all of your options are underwater. Uh, so morale was terrible. At the same time, because this was a company that had been very successful for many years, you had a bunch of people underneath, you know, maybe the top layer, that wanted to do a great job. They wanted this to work, and they were incredibly talented. Mm. The the, the it, I'm, I'm a big believer that um, so I'm a bit of a Maoist.
0: A Maoist.
1: Fish, <laughs> fish rot from the head, huh. and there was some aspects of the top leadership of the company that were not appropriate. In fact, the CEO had been fired. Sure, uh, but underneath that, you had unbelievable passion and talent at the company, and I felt. It was all about, you know, mobilizing this talent in pursuit of the turnaround plan, and that proved to be correct.
0: So you didn't come in and just bring in your team with you, a brand new team, and sweep I, the decks.
1: I brought no team. You brought no team. No. You
0: decided to work with the people who were there and make them part of your team.
1: And uh, on day one, I told the management team, everybody starts with an A. Uh, uh, you get to decide whether you're going to keep the A. So, But we f- we're going to forget about what happened before, right? Because it's all about what we're going to do going forward. Hmm. Uh, at the same time, you know, I've learned in turnarounds that, uh, uh, you know, you need to make sure you have the right team. So you have to quickly assess at the top of the company whether you have the right team, people who are qualified and mobilized uh, to do what's needed. So we made a few. I made a few changes very quickly. Uh, out of the top seven people at the company, I removed three in the first couple of months, recruited a couple of people from the outside, promoted from within, eliminated some layers, so quickly moved to build a team. But then we worked together to establish the diagnosis. And then what we were going to do, how we were going to turn around the company.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: How much time did you have before you would run out of money? So the company was actually profitable, in generating cash. So, the danger in retail, so you're right to point this but out. But your market
0: cap was was Was, was, collapsing. was shrinking. Yeah.
1: The, the risk, uh, the way Circuit City went away is that the, the vendors pulled the plug. Hmm. And so, we had a risk. And I joined just a few weeks before the beginning of the very important Circuit holiday Circuit City season. went
0: bankrupt in 2009, I think. Or, or uh, in
1: November of 2008. Yeah. And that's how it happened is the, the vendors pulled the, the plug. Of course, this was in the middle of the Great Recession. So – There was a uh, risk that could happen to Best Buy. And yes, because we were running into the the, the, the the holiday season, which is really important in, in, in the business of Best Buy, as you can uh, imagine. And it was critically important that we quickly uh, start moving in a different uh, direction. So, uh, my first official day on the job was September 4th. uh 2012. In 2012. We presented our plan to uh, the market, to Wall Street in November of 2010. So, had two months to, to present a plan. And
0: the plan was roughly to...
1: So, Renew Blue was the plan. Renew Blue. So, we had, what did we do? First, we decided that we had to take price off the table. So, we decided to match price. Online match. prices. Yep. Uh, we had to improve the online shopping experience, right? Because this is where the shopping journey starts. And our website our website was really... Terrible! The, the search engine couldn't find what you were looking for because I spent, guy, I spent the first week on the job working in a in a series of stores. Mm-hmm. I learned so much because uh, I would, you know, during the day they would show me how the stores operate. At the end of the day, we would do focus groups. and tell me everything that's going wrong yeah. that we need to fix, and I learned so much, uh, including this point that the search engine on the site was not able to. What we were looking for, so we improved the online shopping experience. We worked on improving the supply chain to increase the speed of shipping, so that we could essentially neutralize Amazon by having the same prices, a good online shopping experience, and fast shipping. Then we worked to improve the shopping experience in the stores. We invested in the training, the proficiency of the associates, we invested in improving their systems so that they could do their job. The price match was really important for them because this was a way for them not to lose the customers. Mm. And then we did the, the vendor partnerships We um, in, in December. This was
0: all in the plan in, in November of 2012. Yes, exactly. And the vendor partnerships were primarily,
1: with, I think, with Microsoft. So, the first one was with Samsung. So, in, mm. in, in December of 2012, in our darkest days, J.K. Shin, the CEO of Samsung Electronics, flies to Minneapolis, you know, coming from Moscow. And uh, we have this idea together of... Instead of Samsung building stores across the country like Apple had done, which would have taken years and built a fixed cost for him, we decide that he's going to be able to do Samsung stores within our stores. Inside of Best Buy. Inside of Best Buy. And pay you rent. And pay us, it's not rent, but give us good economics. It was good for the customer because the customer in the same store could see the Apple product and the Samsung products. It was good for Samsung because in a matter of weeks or months- there, They've got a, uh, how many
0: stores across? How many Best Buy's across?
1: 1,000 stores in the US. There 1,000 stores. Great locations, great traffic. Yeah. And it was good for us because good economics attached to this. And then we did the same with uh, with Microsoft, with Sony, uh, even today with Google and, and Amazon. And all of these tech companies have invested.
0: But l- l- when you made that deal with Samsung, didn't that piss Apple off?
1: So, uh, I did have a conversation <laughs> with Tim Cook. Uh, and, and the you know, we have a wonderful partnership sure. with all of these tech companies. And they, they know they all compete against each other. But if we can work with each of them in a way that helps them promote their products, create a great customer experience. If you think about the Apple Store within Best Buy, it's, it's, I think Apple would probably say that this is the best shopping experience for Apple products outside of their own stores because we have all of these Apple tables. We have 3,000 mm. Apple experts within our stores. We sell Apple Care. Uh, we are an authorized uh, service provider for the Apple uh, products. And so, in a sense, following some of these deals – We've actually strengthened the partnership with Apple and made it much better. And so, this is not a zero-sum game. This is a game where we can partner with each of these companies to help them grow and grow the markets. So,
0: in a sense, you sort of said, let's think of Best Buy almost like you go to a tech convention, right, where you're walking on the convention floor and there's the Apple, there's the Samsung, there's the Google… You can kind of do many versions of that. You thought, because Best Buys are huge, right? How big are Best Buys? In so 30,000 uh, 30, square foot square or
1: 45. Foot. And, so they're uh, huge. And so we have a lot of space that's it's a great asset, right? So with the idea that the stores are dead, no, they're a wonderful asset for the vendors. And then for the customer, for all of us, the ability – when we're not sure about what to buy, sometimes if we know, then click, 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 we buy it online, we'll yeah. ship it to you, we'll pick it up in the stores. But if, if you need to discover or ask questions, it's a wonderful asset and that's what we've been able to utilize.
0: Were, were there people who, who – on the board or who resisted this idea saying, you know, we're going to cannibalize ourselves by – you know, we're, we're essentially giving space for these big companies to show their stuff and what if people don't buy them from us?
1: And so, uh, if if you're asked one day who killed showrooming in the U.S. by right, showrooming this phenomenon, people go to the store, to our stores, and then they right. buy online. Sure. I have to admit, I personally killed showrooming. Huh. And the way we did it was through the price competitiveness and the price match, because once you are in one of our stores. Uh, if you're interested in the product, get why right would you leave? Because we're not going to be beat. And then we offer you this great experience of being able today to talk to our associates, our blue shirts. I mean, I admire them so much. They're so proficient. They're engaged. They're trying to understand what, what are you trying to do? Yeah. Not just to, you know read features on a box that makes no sense because you've come, you've already researched. But they're trying to match what you're looking to accomplish, the problems you're trying to solve in your life. With the technology solutions we have to wow. offer, so it's a great experience, uh, and then you're not going to pay more than uh, at any one of our competitors. So what is what's? There's nothing wrong with that picture.
0: Now, I have to imagine that when you got there in 2012, first of all, I would never have invested in your stock in 2012.
1: What a mistake!
0: What a mistake! I know, <laughs> but 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 I wouldn't have because I would have thought this this stock price is down to twelve dollars. I mean, this business is going to collapse. This is why I'm not a millionaire. Um, Most people at Best Buy are saying, Amazon is killing us. People are going to Amazon, Amazon, Amazon. You actually decided to partner with Amazon, open a kind of an Amazon store within the store.
1: Yes. So, Amazon is, of course, a competitor. Uh, you know, I admire them so much. They 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 may be the best company or one of the top companies ever. Hmm. Uh, and I'm a big uh, Amazon customer. This said, Amazon plus Best Buy combined. That's only twenty five percent of the overall market. Hmm. And so, one of the things you know, I tell our investors, Amazon is gaining share for sure. They're a great company. Oh, we're gaining share too. Uh, and both companies offer a great experience today. But, but
0: 25% of the consumer electronics prop market is is Amazon and Best Buy. So That's 75% right. is Walmart people, and other people, small but, regional
1: players. Uh-huh. And I think that one of the things the two companies share is the view that, you know, f- focusing on competition is interesting but not fascinating. It's all about a focus on the customer. If you're passionate about understanding the needs of the customers and then creating ways to provide a great solution for the customer, this is how you win. One of the things our customers are interested in is the best available technology. Well, Amazon is, of course, a retailer. They're also a tech company. Yeah, They do these products. They've, and, and, and the, the, the tablets, you know, remember? The, 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 the televisions. The, they do the fire TV. They do the these uh, black cylinders uh, that uh, tell jokes, you know, Alexa and Echo sure. products. So they have a great product line. And Best Buy, we've always been clear. That started before my time, but I confirmed it as a strategy. We're going to sell the best products in the market. That includes the Amazon uh, products. And fear you know, is not a great strategy. Customer focus is a great strategy. So Best Buy, we're a little bit like the Coliseum, where the gladiators come and fight for mm-hmm. the interest of the customers. Yeah. We're the place where you can walk into either a site or the stores, and now we go to your home, and you're going to have access to the best technology in the world. You're going to see
0: Google there. You're going to see Apple there. You're going to see Amazon there. We have They're, everybody. Right. The, Samsung. T- t-
1: take any major tech company. Right. They have a significant presence. Uh, associates are specially trained. You're going to be able to understand what's possible with technology because technology innovation is wonderful. Many of us... Uh, we don't always know what's possible, what system to choose, yeah. how everything is going to work together, and how to keep it going. And so you need help or want help, and we're the place where you can see the technology and get good advice.
0: So you're like you're like Switzerland. You're neutral. Everyone's there. and, and I like yeah. the
1: idea of the Coliseum. Okay. <laughs> Where it's exciting. Right. Switzerland right. is exciting for skiing, but I'm not sure it's exciting okay. for other things. Just a little bit a little boring maybe. Okay. I, I want to
0: ask you about customer service, right? Because one of the obvious advantages of going into a store is you can ask for expertise and help from mm-hmm. a customer service rep. Um, My impression is that that was true at one time in history in America. You went into a Macy's or a J.C. Penney or or a Bloomingdale's and you you, Neiman Marcus. you get really – get expertise. The people offering you customer service had jobs that could sustain a
1: middle-class life. Um, Is that that model still possible today? Absolutely. And I need to uh, walk you through a little bit how we're thinking about this. In a sense, after the turnaround phase, we worked on defining our reason for being. Who do we want to be? Our yeah. purpose. And the way we've thought about our strategy, we, we, we don't think of ourselves as a retailer selling gadgets. Uh, we have a much bigger purpose. Our purpose is to enrich lives through technology by addressing key human needs. And the human needs we're talking about are entertainment, communication, productivity, security, food preparation, and health and wellness. So if you walk into our stores or you're online or we go to your home, what are you trying to accomplish? If you're interested in the TV, what, what is it for? Is it do you like to entertain with uh, sports or do you like to uh, watch movies or do you have kids that play video games? What are you trying to accomplish? I remember a story uh, in, a, in, a, in our Mountain View store here. Uh, a woman walks into the store and she's looking for headphones. And uh, Anthony Vu, who is the sales supervisor who talks to her, doesn't ask her, what kind of headphones would you like, what features. He asked her, what are you going to use them for?
0: to run? Are you gonna. Exactly. Run, and she walk. said,
1: this is for the office. Hmm. Uh, and so it's important to me that I can hear my coworkers if they ask me a question and so forth. And so he probably sold her one of the least expensive uh, headphones because he wanted. To meet her needs, yeah, uh, and the, the, so that's our, our mission. In order to fulfill that mission, uh, we have, you know, uh, the, the employees, whether they work in the stores, the blue shirts, or the Geek Squad agents, or people who are, are merchants or work on the site, our data scientists, they're all interested in pursuing this purpose and being helpful to uh, to customers. So the store, empl- the store employees, they're going to be. Uh, of course, very knowledgeable about products, and they're going to have this wonderful human attribute of being able to have a dialogue and understand what you're looking for, and then matching your needs with uh, the technology. The, in a full lab, in a full employment market, uh, we've been able to reduce the turnover in the stores to about to less than thirty percent from sixty percent a few years
0: and ago. And in general, in the consumer or in the retail space, it's is high.
1: Yes, and 30% is remarkably low. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact there's some pockets of our uh, frontline employees like our in-home advisors where the turnover is like 8%. Mm-hmm. And these are these are salaried full-time uh, sales positions where you're going to be able to raise a family with that job. Mm-hmm. And so we've created an environment in which people can you know have an exciting job, can have a career uh, and feel that they're doing great things for, you know, the people they're interacting with.
0: So I want to I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier in the interview about Milton Friedman, of course, the famous economist who really m- many people say is responsible for the idea that today corporations believe that their primary fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders, yes. which means the CEO is focused on the stock price and on the board's demands and on shareholder value because they have to be, yes. right? There is an increasing criticism of this view. Yes. Right, we we see where this movie has headed. Yes, vast inequality in the U.S. Right, when I was a kid, my best friend's dad worked at Marshalls. Right, he he raised a family. He worked at Marshalls. Yeah. That is virtually impossible in in the biggest metro areas today in America. Is there? Do you think there's a connection between that Milton Friedman view of the world, and and what has happened? You know, with corporate America, with employees of corporations?
1: I think there is a, a, an increasing view that the Milton Friedman view is is deeply flawed. And certainly, I believe that there is a completely different perspective. I don't believe for a second that the purpose of a company is to make money. You have to make money, of course, because otherwise you couldn't pay salaries and invest in the business and it's actually okay to reward the shareholders. In fact, at Best Buy, you know, the share price has gone from eleven dollars to sixty-seven or something right. like this. But there's a big difference between uh, the, the necessity and a purpose. And so, I've been passionate about this topic for many, many years. There's really five key beliefs. And the first one is the view that, uh, as human beings, we're driven by, you know, finding the meaning of our life. The meaning of life is is a very important question for all of us. And because work is an, an important part of our life, work is an essential element of our humanity. And it'd be good if it could be connected to the search for meaning in our life. That's the first belief. The second belief is the idea that a company, at the end of the day, is a human organization made of individuals working together in pursuit of a certain goal. And the third belief is indeed the fact that the the, the purpose of a company is not to make money. It's to contribute to the common good. And uh, at Best Buy, it's to enrich life through technology by addressing key human needs. If you're not clear about why you exist and what service you provide to society, uh, this is not uh, good. The next belief is the idea that, uh, in fact, magic happens at a company if you can connect the search for meaning with the purpose of the company. If people at the company can build human interactions, meaningful human interactions with their colleagues and with their customers or with the vendors, uh, if they uh, can acquire skills and become masters of uh, certain skills, if they have autonomy, and then if they're in a growth environment. If you can create this environment, then extraordinary things happen for all stakeholders, as a company, we need to serve all of the stakeholders, our customers, our employees, our vendors, our shareholders, and the communities in which we operate. And by the way, there is no need for any trade-off between these things because it's by simultaneously doing a great job for these various communities and aligning all of these communities in pursuit of the purpose that you create great outcome for all of them. And today at Best Buy, you know we're not perfect, but the customers love us much more than they did seven years ago. The employees are happy. The vendors have seen what we can do for them. We've had one of the top, total shareholder return for customers, and you try to be good citizens. Ironically, I think you get to a better outcome for shareholders through this approach than being singularly focused on shareholders. Hubert, um, how important is it as
0: a leader to be liked? How important is it to you that that the people who work around you
1: like you? i um, I would say it's not about being liked. In fact, there is a danger if you're uh, self-centered. I believe that the greatest danger for all of us as leaders, irrespective of the level at which you're a leader in the company, is if you're seduced by the attraction of power, fame, glory, or money. Mm. If your ego is what you're trying to serve, this is a huge danger. I'm not saying you should not be liked.
0: You I think, have to be liked I at think, some level for people to be, feel motivated to really I deliver. I you have
1: right. to inspire, right. which is very different. So uh, there's a question of who, who are you serving as a leader? If you believe you're serving yourself or your boss or the CEO of the company, I tell actually our, our leaders, it's actually okay, but I don't think you should work here. You're not going to be happy. You have a choice but you should not work here. If you believe on the other end that who you're serving are the servants, quote unquote, meaning people on the front line, and your role as a leader is to serve the servants, then this is much more uh, meaningful. So your role as a leader is indeed to inspire, uh, and uh, (laughs) I I believe for a long time that being being smart was really important, but that's not my role as a leader, is not to be the smartest person in the room, uh, in fact, there is a danger uh, of trying to appear like this and make sure that everybody knows how then smart do Because if you're not you in
0: the room, nobody can make a decision,
1: and and it's not very inspiring. And mm. you're not going to get anywhere. Your role as a, my view is that your role as a leader is to create an environment in which others can be successful. Uh, through you know the a, we call this one of our values at Best Buy is unleash the power of the people. It's create an environment in which people want to come to work and do great things.
0: How do you make sure that Best Buy? stays innovative? I mean, there are so many disruptors and potential disruptors. There's obviously there's direct-to-consumer as a big trend. I'm wearing Allbirds. I got my electric bike directly from the manufacturer. How do you create or make sure that the people who are working with you are innovating, are, are you know, disrupting internally?
1: Yes. And so after the turnaround phase, after Renew Blue, we entered in, in a new phase, which we've called building the new blue. Best Buy 2020, building the new. How do we reinvent the company for the future? And, and how do you do that? We went back to what are the needs of the customers that we can address? One of the needs we're trying to address is health. We have a focus on aging seniors, mm-hmm. helping them live a, uh, their life independently, longer in their home, with the help of technology. Uh, and we acquired a company to help us do this, company out of San Diego called Great Call. You know, we all have aging parents, right? Sure. And through the the, the sensors and analytics and artificial intelligence and uh, care centers, we try to detect changes in behavioral patterns. So if you stop getting to the kitchen, you know, probably you're not eating or go to the bathroom or if you don't sleep well. Sure, sure. And then we uh, create an intervention to make sure that they uh, get uh, taken care of. And so this has the impact of helping them live independently longer, and then preventing catastrophic events like falls, uh, and, and, of course, which reduces healthcare costs. And we're setting this service through Medicare Advantage uh, providers, so the insurance companies or, you know, the, the Kaiser Permanentes of this world. Uh, and so this is something that never touches our stores. We leverage our Geek Squad agents because you need to install these devices in people's homes and make sure they keep running because it's a matter of life or death sure. in many cases. And uh, so by going to the uh, a true need of the customer and seeing how we can use technology to meet these needs, we create a new market, a new opportunity, and make a big difference in uh, people's lives.
0: I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that your competitive advantage is that you're selling, the the thing you're selling is
1: human interaction. It, it's a combination of touch and tech. And technology, again, is increasingly exciting, but many of us need help with that. And so it has allowed us to innovate in, in a way where it's really hard for anybody else to compete.
0: Sure. Hubert, um, looking down the road, right, I mean, is in, in 10 or 20 years, is Best Buy going to be what do you imagine? I mean, there's, you know, there's tons of people out there who say, "Look, Amazon bought Whole Foods. Maybe they'll buy Best Buy, and that will be their answer to the Apple stores, or their answer to, you know, the Samsung, or whatever it might be."
1: Exactly what it looks like twenty years from now is hard to predict, uh, because we're going to continue to innovate, and if we continue to be driven by this, by the sense of purpose and mission, and being a human. Purposeful company, I think we're going to continue to do great things. At the same time, we have to remain very modest and humble and vulnerable and know that uh, if we don't challenge ourselves, you know bad things could happen to us.
0: Hmm. Do you think that you were born with leadership qualities? Were you born with the ability to lead, or do you think you learned how to do that?
1: I was not born with that. I, I got all sorts of great gifts, but leadership is something that I feel I learned over many, many years. And I learned it from other uh, individuals, observing uh, great leaders, learning from them. When I watch some of our frontliners, some of our store GMs, you know, my view is that in my next life, I want to come back just like us. There's a story about a store GM uh, uh, that I uh, was visiting a store in Boston. And that store GM asked each one of the employees, what is your dream in your life? At Best Buy, what is your dream? And my job as the store general manager is to help you achieve your dream.
0: That's chairman and CEO of Best Buy, Hubert Joly. And by the way, Best Buy just recently announced that after nearly seven years, Hubert will be moving into the role of executive chairman. And he'll pass the reins on to his CFO, Corey Berry, who will be the first female CEO to lead the company. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built-It Productions.